This is the More to the Story podcast with Dr. Andy Miller. We hope you guys enjoyed today's conversation. Welcome to the More to the Story podcast. I am so glad you come along. And I know some of you are very interested in the content we have today. It's been one that's been long in coming, but I'll get to that in just a second. I hope that you'll like this uh, on your social media, share it, uh, subscribe on YouTube if you're watching that way. This will help us get the message out more. And if and I don't have many people who actually left comments on like Apple Podcasts or that kind of thing. So that would be a helpful thing too, as we're developing this ministry more to the story, this podcast. And there's some other things that are coming down the pike here soon too. I have found the little book of Jude, the 25 verses in Jude, to be incredibly powerful for our time. Actually, I found one commentator who said that this burningly relevant book, that's what they said, has often been coming back to prominence in periods of revival. And so I'm going to be putting out later this summer, in the middle of the summer, hopefully in July, a study, a six-part study on Jude. It's a video series, and there'll be some things you can download. There'll be extra bonuses as well. But that's all coming soon. And you can find out about that if you go and sign up for my email list at andymillerthird.com. That's andymillerii.com. And also, I'll have a free resource for people who uh, kind of help people prepare for preaching and teaching if you sign up for my email list. So there's two things that are coming that way. Also, just thankful to Bill Roberts, who's a, one of the sponsors for this podcast. He's a financial planner. He's a salvationist, somebody who's like committed to the Wesleyan Holiness tradition. And he also has a business that's really effective. And he kind of brings together his Christian principles as he helps serve people, to help them plan for their financial future. So there, there's Bill Roberts. And also, we're thankful for Wesley Biblical Seminary, where I work, where we are training trusted leaders for faithful churches. And I think if you're checking out this podcast, you're likely in that camp. And if you would like to learn about how you can go deeper in your faith, we'd love to talk to you about that. So you can go to wbs.edu. All right, we are now into the place where we're finally there. I'm going to welcome in my guest, Envoy Steve Bussey. This has been a long time coming, Steve. Glad to have you on the podcast. Look out, world. It's good to be here. <laughs> Absolutely. Now, here's the danger. This is seriously, we are seriously in danger of a five-hour podcast. Exactly. <laughs> so there have been people, then probably the number one requested guest that I've had is for you, Steve, to come along. And uh, we've, we've been friends for a while, and we kind of like share a lot of similar perspectives and have some good, even when we disagree, we have some good discussions. So I've, I've always appreciated you. But Steve, I would um, love to just hear, so some people in my audience don't know who you are. Yeah. Um, so I'd just love for you to give a, a little few minutes about yourself. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I think the first thing is I'm a child of God, you know, Amen. I've been saved by the blood of Jesus. You know, I'm being set apart and made holy by the fire of the Holy Spirit. That is, that is who I am. Uh, but on a more practical temporal level, I was born in Canada, uh, grew up, uh, the, the son of Salvation Army officers. I lived in Canada, but my parents were also missionaries in Zimbabwe and South Africa, when I was in South Africa, I met, uh, when I was 14 years old, a young woman named uh, Sharon Tuck, who be, eventually became my wife. Uh, we got married, though, in 1996, and we have two amazing kids, both of who are Asbury University grads. There you go. Uh, yeah, and uh, we have been, uh, we, we served in South Africa um, for three years as Division of Youth Secretaries, which is overseeing youth work for the Salvation Army in the Western Cape Division. Um, and then along with that, uh, over. Uh, pastoring, as you would say, uh, four cores um, at the same time. Then God brought us to the United States, and we've been serving here since 1999, so for the past 23 years or so. Actually, 23 years ago this month. 
Okay. And uh, we're serving as mission leadership specialists for a period of time. Then from like 2001 to 2012, we were involved in uh, training youth workers. And uh, in 2006, took over that uh, known as Railton School for Youth Worker Training. Uh, in 2012, we started Salvation Factory, which was the first innovation department in the Salvation Army worldwide and did a lot of exciting uh, sort of outreaches. Actually, Matt Friedman, who teaches at Wesley Biblical Seminary, yeah. came and was part of a major outreach, which we did in Old Orchard Beach, uh, where we were sharing the gospel with like thousands of people in the, the most biblically illiterate and unreached part of the United States. Wow. Uh, but then in uh, 2020, um, we morphed into a new role, which is the strategic mission department that works under our chief secretary in the United States Eastern Territory, where we're looking at uh, organizational strategy, innovation, uh, and really sort of issues of alignment as well. Awesome. So that's a little bit about it. I mean, that we yeah. Yeah. Study, uh, Thanks back, for that quick summary. Yeah, yeah that's yeah. not not easy to do. And you did a yeah. good job yeah. covering a lot of things. And some of you who you can already hear in Steve's voice, his passion and uh, the, the way God's used him. And, and, and somebody who has done research to look into the history of, of you know, in the Wesleyan Methodist world, but particularly in the Salvation Army. And a lot of things that Steve and I are going to talk about might be related to our particular denomination. But as, I, as this podcast has grown, what's been interesting to me, Steve, is that other folks in the Wesleyan tradition have reached out to me and saying, well, whenever, when you talk about the Salvation Army, it sounds just very similar to what I'm experiencing in the Nazarene church or the Wesleyan church. And it's, it may be not exactly the same, but there are parallels. And I think it's happening in many, on many fronts. And this is something that's consistent that we're, we're feeling. So before we get to some of the thing, and e, oh, you, you want to jump in there, go ahead. Say something about that as well. Like when I think about as well, the Wesleyan holiness movement and, 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 our, and our brothers, sisters and Methodism at, you know, Nazarene, et cetera, et cetera. And you look at the history of evangelicalism, in many ways, the crisis which it's in, some of the extremities, you know, of whether that's fundamentalism or modernism or liberalism that have been sort of at the forefront of the 20th century, really have been dominated by thoughts that are not necessarily fully reflective of a Wesleyan holiness movement. I think that in many ways, we're at a period right now where the Wesleyan holiness movement is going to play a critical role in right. the church in America and, and globally as well. So I think our conversation together with, uh, with in the broader context, I think is very relevant. Right. And th I think this is the place for, this is why seminaries like the Wesley Biblical Seminary are thriving. And we have septupled in size in four years. So, and what is that? Like we're serving this pan Wesleyan movement. And this is why organizations like Seedbed are starting to gain traction is because these, these movements are like sticking to doctrinal convictions and at the same time, not just restricted to one particular denomination. So mm -hmm. there's a lot uh, that we can learn together. And I'm often cautious to even use the word holiness movement. Sometimes I've heard people say the Salvation Army is a holiness movement. And that's true in a sense, but generally like the, the terms holiness movement refers to historical reality. Uh, yeah. And we are part of the holiness tradition. And yeah. so because there's a way that the holiness movement, forgive me, has not been moving very much. Like, right. So this is, this is yeah. a problem, but we're, but this tradition, this theological tradition, this missional tradition is something that is positioned for growth and is growing in many sectors, but we might just think like, we're the inheritors of a legacy that comes from John and Charles Wesley. And that's been passed down and, and through us that also made its way through the booths and the Salvation Army. I think that's a great clarification, you know, because I, I think that sometimes hubris if we use a term like movement, it sort of says, oh, well, everything's fine. When in fact, no, we, we have got to do some serious calibration here. Yes. We're going to be true to our holiness tradition. 
That's right. Now it's interesting. As we talk about this, we're going to be we're going to be covering some curriculum things that we've seen in our movement. I know that's also been the case in other. Um, denominations have used a similar curriculum. I mean, just flat out say it's an orange curriculum, something that we'll talk about further. We're not getting there yet. You're going to have to wait, folks. Um, then the other thing is we're going to we're talk about polity. We're going to talk about like how we even define what is uh, a traditions theology, how we arrive at a canon for uh, a specific, specific theological missional tradition. But before we get that, like it'd be really easy for people to hear me and you talk. And if we're critical of a few areas, but they'd miss the fact that that's not the focus of our life in ministry. Like why, why would we be critical in part is because we're for something broader. We're for something, I would say even more beautiful. And it's related to how truth exists in the world. So Steve, what is it? What is it that you're for? Yeah. I mean, I, I think that the Salvation Army in, in our beginning as well, we had a cornerstone in which, uh, which was put on the building of every Salvation Army, which says this building exists for the glory of God and the salvation of the world. Amen. Amen. I mean, like, drop the mic. That summarizes it, right? And yeah. when we read scripture and we read, you know, our creation mandate, you know, and you read um, the great commandment to love God and to, you know, with all our heart, mind, soul, strength, and to love our neighbor as ourselves, you know, when you read the great commission to go into the world and to make disciples, I mean, that is a purpose that 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 we live, you know, that is critical, you know, that 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 is absolutely fulfilling. It's the greatest life that we could ever live. And so the question of how do I live my life fully aligned to that? I mean, that we have all been created in the image of God, that we've all been created for a purpose and discovering what that purpose is and living up to that as individuals, but along with that, recognizing the fact that we are part of a community of believers as well. And, and, I, and Catherine Booth in her first chapter of Aggressive Christianity, she talks about like how that great commission that we have been given, you know, why is it that we're not seeing this fulfilled more yeah. effectively yeah. in each generation? And we have to ask ourselves why, you know, why is this not being realized and how can we do it better? What do we need to do to stay absolutely true to that commission that Jesus has given to us and, 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 to, and, and to live in that deep relationship with him? And, and so to me, that is something that really drives, you know, everything about who I am, who Sharon is, you know, and, and what we do with our life, you know? So I, I would say, you know, for me, the things which I am deeply passionate about, which I believe that we would find resonance with both in the Salvation Army and in the broader holiness tradition is that, um, is that we share an identity in Christ, right? Mm -hmm. yes, that we yes. are called to be saints, to experience the gift of full salvation, to spread holiness throughout the world, right? Bye -bye. Um, uh, and, and then with that, that purpose to find the best imaginative method to be able to accomplish that. I think, I think that's the goal. Can, can, I, can I give a fun illustration of what this sure, is? Sure. I would say that if the gospel, <laughs> it's like, you didn't know I was coming with props, right? <laughs> but at the, Catherine Booth in, the, in, our, in our third chapter, she says the gospel is, 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 is like pure water. And, and again, you know, there's nothing better than water. It's a source of life. And she says, we need to keep the blessed gospel whole. But when once we keep the blessed gospel whole, she says, we got to deliver it in the best cup, right? Yeah. That, that will connect with people. So that cup can change over time. You can find all sorts of different types of cups. Amen. To communicate that old gospel, right? Now, these are all Salvation Army cups, right? But if you're from a Nazarene church or whatever else it is, you know, that can be key, right? Now, that water gets poured into whatever one of those cups are, right? 
But if we get to a point where there's no water. There you go. Right? We're in okay. serious trouble. Let me tell the audio people what just happened. Okay. A magic trick. <laughs> a magic trick. Basically, the water is no longer there in the cup. Right. Yeah. And, and so, like, again, if you read those first three chapters of Captain Boost, he's talking about, you know, that we need to find the best way to accomplish this. In our second chapter called Adaptation Measures, she, needs, she says we need to adapt our measures to the times and circumstances in which we live. But in the third chapter, she says the gospel needs to remain pure and we wow. have to keep it whole. And when she argued, she actually debated the Bishop of Carlisle, the Anglican bishop, uh, in 1880. This is where she said we must keep the blessed gospel whole, but we must deliver it in the best cup. In other words, we innovate the cup, right. but we never, ever, ever innovate the gospel, the message. Mm -hmm. and, and I think that we're in a crisis in which that basic, very simple message we've lost. And so right. to me, that is something which I stand for. How do we stay absolutely true to our identity and purpose and yet find the best methodology to be able to accomplish that? Beautiful. Yeah. The similar ideas like form and function or mission and model. I think like those, those are ways to talk about the same thing. Like the, the cup is the, the way that we hold this, the way that we present it, but the purity of the mission is what needs to be held. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, if you look at, I mean, we, we, we chatted a little bit yesterday about this, that the uh, emergent church, which came out of sort of Gen X and the whole discussion about yeah. modernity in the 1990s, um, they introduced, you know, the, the, the French uh, postmodern philosopher Jacques Derrida, who introduced right. the concept of deconstruction, right? right. And they right. began to apply deconstruction to the church. And, and several of those who were part of the emerging church movement and emerging church movement began to deconstruct the methodologies. That's great. You know, we, if, if there is something that has become, has barnacled itself onto the church, we need to figure out what the barnacle is from the boat, and we need to consistently clear off barnacles. The problem is that they move from deconstructing the, the methodology to deconstructing right. the message. And I believe that we are across the world in a serious crisis because of that. Yes. I mean, that, that's a challenge. And when, when I think about the question myself, like, what am yeah. I what for? About you? <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't want to be in a place where I'm just describing, well, I'm not the emergent, I'm not changing the message. Instead, I keep on wanting to highlight the beauty of what the message is. Yeah. And it's easy for us to kind of be sidelined or to be pushed aside. It's like, we're just these uh, anti people. Instead, you kind of look at the very essence of creation, like God is love. The, yeah. Like kind of like before all time began, God exists as three persons, undivided in essence, co-equal in power and glory in a loving relationship. They create out of that existence and then put the world on a trajectory where even as a result of the sin that has fallen into the world, there's an opportunity to experience a recreation and a rebirth. And this comes ultimately through the person of Jesus. And this is why like, I want to highlight this as much as possible because I believe this is what everybody needs, not just for this life, but for the life to come. Like we need something to stand in place of our sins, someone to stand in place of our sins, yeah. to take on, like, as we say, like uh, it's very, one of the, clearest places that we actually have the word just in the Salvation Army's Articles of Faith. It says we're justly exposed to the wrath of God. Amen. I always think it's kind of interesting when we talk about justice. Well, what, how does justice express itself most fully in the person of Jesus? Yeah. Right? So, 
And that if, if this is the case, that we can be freed from our sins, that we can be freed for joyful obedience, that we can experience the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives now. And then that's not just like a personal thing. That's like a social reality. It's something that we anticipate the new creation now that Jesus is going to return and he's going to put all things right. There's going to be a new heavens and a new earth. There's going to be judgment there. I believe in heaven and hell. And yeah. all of these things like are, are part of a reality that yeah. like encompasses my being. That's what I'm for. And I want people to be able to experience that blessing in their life. So why do I, why do I critique the challenges of deconstruction now? Well, it's because like only people are not able to experience the fullness that God has for them. And, and like, I'm not going to settle for people just saying, you know what, um, I, I'm deconstructing right now. Well, maybe you're analyzing and that's my job as a, as a, a theological educator. Like I want people to have the firm foundations for what they believe. Go, let's do that. Let's do that. But we're not, we're, we're not going to say that everything that came before us needs to be torn down. Like at the same time, I think that that's a real danger, particularly Steve, as we highlighted the message. Yeah. So I, I could not agree more, you know? And I mean, like, uh, again, you know, uh, we, we are for the transformation of our world. Yes. Right. Yeah. You know, and, and somewhere along the line, and I do think it's, it's largely, I think that again, when you look at that, at that, that evangelical tradition of, of the Wesleyan movement and the holiness yeah, yeah. movement in the 18th and 19th centuries, you saw this, I think Timothy Smith in his book, Revivalism yeah, yeah. and Reform illustrates it so beautifully that, that there is a revival on an, an eternal level of souls that are being saved, people who are going to heaven that inevitably leads to the transformation of society. Right. And, right, and so right, right. when we talk about this, I'm not talking about this as an individualist who's saying, you know, I'm saved. I'm going to lock myself in my church and wait for Jesus to come and get me. No, I mean, I mean, like this is not just good news for me that that when the gospel and the glory of God fully radiates, not within myself, but within my social network and within my community, inevitably reform society. So, so if we want to look at it at a very temporal level, the benefit, what I'm for, is the transformation of society. I am for justice. I am for inclusion. I am for all of these things of, of, of every person experiencing the love of God as you communicated. But the question is, what is the best way to do that? And I believe it's when we are aligned to classical Christianity. Right. This And this is why this, this piece of like, I, I, I tend to say like what, what we're about in general, like the classical consensual tradition of the church and like, we're not trying to inv invent anything new and i think it's really you'd be really cautious when people uh the the problem in some ways and i i use the word woke hesitantly the problem with and if you don't know what i mean by that i'm sorry like we have to take so um it, it, the problem in general that i'm i'm afraid that can happen is, is it's not constructing it's, there's, there, might, there might be deconstruction, but where are we going? What do we do? Okay, so let's analyze some problems that exist in society. Um, racism, for sure. Like, let's, let's, let's call yeah. it out. Yeah. Um, uh, even people might not like my answer to it, but homophobia. Okay, let, let's call it out. Let's not treat people as if they're not human. Like, let's do the same thing with abortion. Like, let's say that th these are babies that are created in God's image, that killing an innocent life intentionally is wrong like let's call these things out yeah. so i i'm i i i think the problem in general here is that we're not reconstructing we're not going in direction and that's yeah. what you're highlighting yeah. you're saying the transformation of the world but let's be cautious too like that's also been a message that has um been thwarted yes. by our friends in the united methodist church absolutely and, and if i could add to this um that yeah. that, that i think george yancey's research has done this so well 
You know, yeah. I, he has hit the nail on the head better than anyone on, on this. former podcast guest. Just yes, go back great. Go back and listen to him. I've listened to him. It's great, great guy. He's 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 a good friend actually as well. And okay. um, and 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 when it comes to these things, you know, what we assume is that the debate the the debate is a political left or right debate. Right, and, right. And and I th- I think I think when it comes to that, that that there are secular arguments, right? Secular is just a Latin word which means temporal. Right. Mm-hmm. But it's come to mean the absence of any Christian biblical worldview speaking into things because because our society has sought to privatize the a biblical sort of influence in our society. But I do believe that scripture speaks into that. Right. But when we have a secular left, you know, attempt to try to understand that or a secular right attempt to understand that both of those start. And George Yancey says this start from the assumption of human perfectibility in our own natural ability. Right. Mm -hmm. We assume basically on enlightenment beliefs that we have the ability to solve the most complex problems by our own rationality. Right. And what George Yancey says as a sociologist is that has never been true. Right. And he says until we and what you said earlier, until we acknowledge our human depravity. Right. Right. That is where we are most inclusive, that we are all justly and totally depraved and justly exposed to the wrath of God. It's like that needs to be our starting point of any social justice or ethical issue and stuff like that. In other words, if we debate the ethics and the politics without getting to the foundations of how we're having those arguments, we're going to never solve the problem. We're just going to be in a cycle, uh, a a vicious cycle of that, that uh, of attacks. And so you and I have gotten to this place like of like where we think kind of the essence of that. We we affirm the historical tradition of the Salvation Army and like this holistic mission that you've described, like this, this role that we play in the world, but also in the role of the individual. We haven't even talked about like the, the reality of the, the whosoever, like the, the, this available, like when you talk about inclusiveness, like this is a yeah. part of what we're talking about too. So Absolutely. what, what I'm going to pivot here a little bit. We, we've thought about this in uh, you and I've talked about it. I've, I, because of, I'm so thankful to have been married into a United Methodist family that's on the evangelical side of that denomination. And so my wife's family members have been a part of all of the general conferences um, that have happened for the last 40 years. Like they've been voting members on the floor. And so when I go visit her family, I'm just hearing about these things. And is it so Abby and I have been married 20 years this month. Oh, praise the Lord. Um, and so it's a little long too. It's a little like, I can't believe it's been that long. Uh, it's such <laughs> a blessing. Like, like, really? Thank you, Lord. So, um, so this is, I've been here about this for 20 years. Well, about 10 years ago, I realized the conversations that I heard about Methodism and I've been happening for now 50 years for them. We're starting to express themselves in the Salvation Army. Yeah. And and now like my friends in Wesleyan Nazarene, et cetera, all these places, like you see that that happening there. I think we need to learn from if we call, I don't know if we call them quite big brothers, big brothers, big sisters in the Methodist Church, uh, United Methodist Church, we can learn from them. And I've seen you recently picking up on some of this as well. So what is it that you're learning, Steve, from Methodism? 
yeah. Methodism. First of all, I, I mean, like my heart goes out to to those who are part of the global, uh, the United Methodist Church and the Global Methodist Church. A, a split, a change, something like that that's never easy to go through, you know, and that's a painful thing, you know, because you know we want to see people come together and be unified, but the question is, what are the foundations on which uh, which are creating that unity, that Catholicity and stuff, and 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 I, and I think that. Um, what the, the Methodists have been going through speak to the broader holiness tradition yes. you know, as well to each one of us, um, because, and, and I, I do think that, that again, the world which we're living in today, it, 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 there, there is a, a strategy. I think actually Thomas Otis, Oden's biography, which I'm just halfway through right now, I think he, he lays it out so well when he talks about, um, he, he actually references, I'm, I've got a quote from, from his book, A Change of Heart. He speaks about the influence of Saul Alinsky's Reveille for Radicals. Yes, yes. And he says that, that when he was in, this was like in the 1940s and 1950s, he said that Saul Alinsky taught him about social pragmatism, political opportunism. And he said these were useful for co-opting religious structures wow. as instruments for the fundamental transformation of society. There we go back right, to the right, same right. thing. But the idea of how do we co-opt religious structures to accomplish what we want? How do we do that? And he said there were four ways which Zelensky was teaching him through strategic deception, through surprise attacks on vulnerabilities, through mm. direct action, and through rhetorical cover-up. Mm. You know? Wow. Like this is the explicit explicit tactics from Saul Linsky. Yeah, yeah. Explicit tactics, right? And, and and these are the same tactics that are being celebrated in, in some movements, one of which is progressive Christianity. I mean, you, you can look at this and there, there are tactics in which there are intentional Trojan horse strategies. I think Ken Collins says it really well in, in the beginning of the next Methodism. He uses the term narrative displacement. You know, mm -hmm. in which yes. people are using words which sound like they are Wesleyan, that they are biblical, that they are salvationist, you know, or whatever, but they are using a different dictionary. What's one of those, one of the, an example of that that you see, like where people are, well, have a narrative displacement? Well, I, I'll, I'll give you an example. I mean, when we use the term love. You know, mm -hmm. again, sure. you can use something, just something I mean, we just talked about, you know, loving God and loving our neighbor, right? I mean, that that is like the definition of a great awakening, the scaling of, of God's great commandment realized for our world, right? But the question is, are we getting our dictionary definition from John Wesley or from John Lennon, mm. right? Yeah, sure. Right. Because I could say love is all you need, you know, and as a result of that, you know, imagine there's a world where there's no religion. Yeah, sure. Yeah, that's not the love I'm talking about here. Right. But then when you read like Ken Collins and his description of Wesley's holy love, right, yes. that is held in dialectic tension. That's totally a different, defini different def definition to what a, a progressive individual would utilize. Um, and, and so, again, when we use terms like this, when we use a term like justice, we absolutely believe in in seeing, you know, see, you know, seeking justice. That, that's biblical. Look at Isaiah. Yeah. Look at through. Uh, I mean, we can just look throughout scripture, but it never compromises God's holiness. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so and so I think that there are terms here and, and, and I believe intentional, I would call them semiotic tactics to intentionally right. create language or to, to create something that looks like it's affirming it and then just twist this one part. And then it's like, wait a second, 
You know, yeah. yes, 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 no. But this is a linchpin yeah. that yeah. if you take this piece out, it actually brings everything down. Let me give an example too. This is very interesting. And you and I just both came a, uh, became aware of this uh, document that came. I'm going to be vague. I'm sorry, folks. You can contact me later, send me an email. And I'll be specific, but I'm going to be vague here. Another Salvation Army territory outside of the United States that has, um, you know, is kind of reforming the way that they express their identity and they, they've put it all together within the concept of identity form. It almost looks like a strategic plan broadly, which is, you know, it's good. We all need to think about like what we do, the, as the illustration you used earlier, the cups that we use to convey the mission. But one of the things that came there is they said in this document, for instance, the words blood and fire shouldn't be used anymore. Now, I'm not, I might not be quoting that exactly, but I, mean, I will quote it exactly for you. Okay. I, I mean, uh, I, 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 might, I, know, I know we talked about being a little more obscure, but I, I, think, I think we need to be honest here because, and, and let me just say this as well, like, again. But this is a narrative of this placement too. Like what yeah. happens when, okay, I understand, like I'm not, I, I understand like as a branding statement and as and somebody who worked in like as an area commander in the Salvation Army a leader, like, okay, I understand we have different audiences to whom we need to communicate. Like this is very clear, no yeah. doubt. But at the same time, like to say we shouldn't use uh, talk about the blood anymore. This is, I mean, this is the type of thing that is was happening in Methodist United Methodism for a long time. No, we can't talk about this. Well, what is behind this? It's an understanding of the atonement that says, no, no. Uh, when you talk about the justly exposed to the wrath of God uh, sort of stuff, and that that Jesus was the atoning sacrifice to any substitutionary nature, like I've been at liberal schools, Steve. I know you have too. Like I study a liberal school. Like there was just a complete rejection of any substitutionary nature of the atonement. Like, and I'm I'm all, all for other other ways to think about the atonement, but we can't move away from the fact that Jesus to say these words, Jesus died for you, yeah, for us. And so even, even rejecting that concept, like, well, what else are you going to put in the fire of the Holy Spirit? Like if we pull away from these terms, say, well, we need something else. Yeah. Ah, let's be cautious. So let, let me, let me give this as an illustration. And, and I will okay. say it's from the United Kingdom's territory. Okay. Right? I, I, I think because again, you know, I, I, this is something which is just conversation. It's said in love. But I do think that on this issue, I think we need to be very clear. Here's things which I affirm. And if you're okay, if I can just read this. Sure. Just whole, because I think that people need to understand how this works. Here's what I would affirm. And this is what it says on their website. A strong, consistent identity helps answer questions such as who are we? What are we doing? And what do we want to be in the future? These are important questions for everyone involved in the life of the army, not just territorial headquarters. An organization's identity can become confused and even contradictory. This is a particular risk for the Salvation Army because we are involved in so many different activities. Do we agree? Andy? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yes, yeah. absolutely. Okay, carries on. The Salvation Army's identity is God-given and God-sustained, but it is vulnerable to being shaped by ungodly pressures that squeeze and distort it. Amen. Yeah. Absolutely agree to that. The army needs an identity that is dynamic and generates godly energy to ensure we faithfully serve the present age. Now that's where I'm just like, wait a minute. I mean, it's identity. Cautious with the dynamic. word. What, what do you mean by dynamic? But I'm. I'm what do we mean? Go, but, keep, we, but we can look through that, right? Yeah. We're part of the universal church, raised up by God with a unique identity and proud history. However, in every generation, the salvation army needs to explore its God-given identity. Wait a minute. We need to explore it. We need to understand it. Yes. 
right? Our identity must have the capacity to make sense of today's aren't Salvation Army members as well as employees, volunteers, the people we serve, our supporters, and our ecumenical partners. The Salvation Army's identity needs to be large enough to encompass all aspects of our work in the one tent. Agree, right? The Salvation Army had, now here we go, past mission tents, a vision and mission for the world that inspired and motivated all kinds of people. Salvation Army history shows what can happen when a powerful message is communicated effectively and powered by a life-changing identity. And then here it comes, here's the linchpin. However, the words and images used by the first Salvationists do not have the same impact today. Mm. Now, is, is this, a, is this a, a, uh, the way in which it is being communicated, you know? It, it, or is it like the core of it, what it is? It says, for example, the motto blood and fire does not make sense of contemporary UK society. We still believe in the vital blood of Jesus and the fire of the Holy Spirit, but we need other words to communicate these eternal truths. Okay, I don't know why we would need other words, but here's the question. What are they? Yeah, yeah. And they're not listed. Even the identity and methods used in the 1990s or 2000s won't necessarily connect today. In a rapidly changing world, we must pay attention to our identity. So the question which I have in that linchpin sort of statement is, if the blood and fire is the engine of the vehicle of the Salvation Army, and you're saying, we're taking this out. Yeah, right? yeah. It's not we're fine tuning it, but it's saying we've removed the engine from the vehicle. And it's like, well, what are you putting into it? You yes, know? Yes. And then we don't understand why is it that this vehicle's not moving anymore, like the holiness movement. Why isn't it moving? Well, maybe we removed the engine from it. Mm-hmm. And we're not saying that this has definitely happened here. Again, it we're could not saying be, that, but, no. But there is, there is some caution. Like this is like, an, and it's not like we need to use, we need to say fire of Ali and we need to wear bonnets and, no. um, or even uniforms for that matter. Like, like I think God can use it, but all right. Like we're willing to yeah. think about different cups going back to your analogy, but there is a danger that mo- moving some of these words, removing some of these words does change the essential identity and this is like a kind of like you and i are learning from united methodism is that this is what's happened for them there's a kind of like a little bait and switch okay okay we can agree that we're a little cautious of where you're going here but yeah. then what happens is like the clarity has come now i remember pretty clearly um there was a and i've talked to people on my podcast about this uh th- there was a movement like probably in 2004 after one of these big events in the methodist church where it just felt like the united methodist church that is where you get to a place where uh, the leader, Bill Henson, Dr. Bill Henson was a pastor of a large church and kind of a a leader of orthodoxy and was a part of something called the confessing movement. He said, perhaps it's time for an amicable separation. Mm -hmm. And people thought, oh no, we can work this out. This is fine. But I think he saw what was coming and perhaps that's something that should have happened for them even then to, to realize that there's a distinction. Now, am I, am I saying get out? No, like I, I'm not, I'm not suggesting that. Like, I think that there is a historical reality of, of our connection, but there are things that unite us. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that that's what happened in Methodism is like, they grew apart on these key distinctions. And one of the ways that expresses itself is biblical authority, the doctrine of revelation, the doctrine of creation comes in the discussion of human sexuality. And yeah. that's become the flashpoint for this, but it represents something much more. Yeah, now, now I, I, I agree with you. And I, I think, again, I, I would highly recommend any person part of the holiness movement to read this book, because yeah. I, I think that there's such wise insight. A lot of Wesley Biblical Seminary folks are writing in this, Asbury, yeah. you know, and others. 
I think Maxie Dunham's sort of historical overview, uh, yes. the chapter is called Theological Accountability, highlights this very well. And what I was going to say is when you talk about the amicable separation, yeah. the question is, you know, how many people are represented in this? Now, Harvard University put out something very interesting. They said, if you want to incite a revolution, all that you need to do is to attract 3.5% of the population, and you can literally change an organization from yeah. the inside out, right? Absolutely. In other yeah. words, you don't need the majority of people. Now, what 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 Maxie Dunham says is that um, that that several of those who were part of like the Good News movement that eventually became yes. the Confessing movement, um, that, that that one last one which really stands out to me is they they signed something called the Houston Declaration, in which they were really affirming the primacy of Scripture, the Trinity, the traditional language, liturgy, liturgy etc. Right, and, and and in that there were forty eight people who signed that. And then they sent that out to 55,000 UMC clergy and 7,000 lay leader representatives, right? They received back from those people 58,000 responses, all of which agreed and affirmed to the elements discussed in the, in the, um, in the, in the Houston Declaration. That's, I mean, that's a ridiculous amount. They said only 87 people disagreed with the, mm. the, the, the elements, right? But only a year or two later, they held um, what was called the Reimagining Conference, in which they said, what are we about? Do we really believe this? Is this where the church stands? What has this to do with our doctrine and mission? I mean, 87, if you had the right 87 people, you can ignore 58,000 people. Yeah, yeah. And shift the turn. So when it comes to that schism, it's like 87 people versus 58,000. That's not even like close. How is it that those 87 people could initiate as something that leads to a split like we've seen with, with the UMC and GMC? I, I think it's those who get into key positions of leadership. Yes. Those who are shaping people through the seminaries. I think Maxie Dunham talks about those two things that don't that, that we don't have governance, which is able to manage theological accountability and doctrinal integrity. I would add to that, though, that those who are in charge of communication. And those who are your, uh, Daryl Miller uses the term balladeers, you musicians, those people who are creating narratives that shape your worldview. I think that those people who are in those positions can tip the tide of any organization. So if you're a Church of Nazarene, if you are, are part of a holiness church, if you're part of a CM, you know, Christian Missionary Alliance, you're part of the Salvation Army, you need to become aware that those who are in strategic positions need to be a hundred percent aligned mm. to your identity and purpose, your doctrines, your disciplines. If they aren't basically read the next medicine, because that's your reality that's coming your way. Right. So that, that's why we want to be so cautious as you get to this place is like, it's, it's not because like we're just heresy hunters. It's like, no. this threatens the very existence of the organizations. So, like, not just, not just a, like our denomination, but this is coming our way. And this is why, like uh, what happened, part of what happened in method is different in the Salvation Army. Like the way our educational system is set up is um, they got the, the seminaries very, very few, like the denominational seminaries funded by the, by the, the denomination as a whole were, promoting teaching that was not consistent with its own statements of faith mm -hmm. and yeah. so that that was just they got a hold of that and they held on and that produced next generation of ministers um uh, fringe ideas were there and like the things that we're experiencing now that might seem they, they might have seemed like fringe at the time but now they've become mainstream and how's that happen well they control those systems and the same thing happens even with the way we allow 
curriculum to be developed. And can I just say this? I, I will give you a very practical illustration from last week. I was yeah. just on Facebook. I was actually sharing a quote from the next Methodism from your yeah. friend Matt O'Reilly, who was just on a couple of weeks ago, right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. And we had somebody who came on who is part of one of our theological training institutions, our training colleges. I won't yeah. say who and I won't say where, but this person came on and basically began to slam the global Methodist church and said, this is not good. This is not biblical. It's killing unity and stuff like this. And, and began to say some things, you know, challenging sort of the ethical. And he basically said, this is not a model which the Salvation Army wants to look at. And so just to sort of lay the groundwork, because again, just because a person is training people within our institution, I want to make sure we're aligned. So I asked the question, basic questions like, do you agree to the 11 doctrines of the Salvation Army? Right, right. Do you believe in the authority of Scripture? Do you believe that in, in you know that we are totally depraved and justly disposed of the gospel? Do you believe in heaven and hell? And the response to me was, I am not accountable to you, and I don't need to answer those questions. Right, right, right. Now, when somebody says that, that should signal to us, wait a second. You know, if we cannot agree to the guardrails here, then then really I'm not having a debate with a person who is aligned. I'm having a, a debate with somebody who is a fox in the hen house. Right. A wolf that's in sheep's clothing. And here's the thing Absolutely. is, that, you know, we sort of say, well, we need to respond pastorally to this. Now, think about a shepherd who comes along and your job is to take care <laughs> What's of the a pastor. Sheep, yeah. <laughs> right? You are a pastor that is taking care of sheep and you have a wolf that's in sheep's clothing and you go, here, little wolfie, come here. Let's bring you into our flock and let's take care of you. I'm going to take my shepherd's crook and like rescue you and bring you and cuddle you and, and put you in with all of my sheep that yeah. you're leading astray. No, the shepherd turns his, his staff around and he uses that rod to, to kill that, that, yeah. that sounds very violent. That sounds very aggressive. But here's the thing. When there are wolves that are threatening a sheep, you yeah, know, yeah. it is not just to respond pastorally to a wolf. Yeah. In fact, it's probably one of the greatest criminal acts that a shepherd could do. Right. To not, to not act and to have, and, and I think I saw you interact there and I think some of that's gone now, but you know, you still did it. not attacking the person. We, no. we want to attack these ideas. And, and that's, in fact, I wasn't even attacking the ideas. I was saying, what is the basis on which we can have the debate? Yeah, can we have like, a conversation? Like, and maybe we could, maybe we could jump ahead <laughs> to uh, we, what we were going to talk about at the end, but it, let's just get there now talking about uh, the idea of canon in theology. And this is where like my teacher, Billy Abraham comes into play in his book, Canon Criteria. Um, and is there, can, <laughs> there it is, wake up for doctrinal amnesia. Um, so it, can we say that there is such a thing as a canon of Savage Army beliefs? And how would we get oh, there? Yeah. So this is this is an important piece for us to say. Like, there is that. And, okay, I'll give you an example. I, this podcast didn't work out, and I had somebody on who's a prominent person online, and uh, there's some technical difficulties that stopped this podcast from happening. And then – then some nothing. I haven't redone it. But what I what the goal was, I walked through all eleven articles of faith, mm -hmm. and I, I just stepped through. Uh, and and by the way, those in the non Salvation Army context, uh, if you're in the Wesleyan Holiness tradition, you would affirm all of these. You would just like us to have sacraments in there, and so would I. But that's another story. Okay. So as as we work through that, when when we we went through all eleven statements, basically everyone he said, nah, yeah, I can't, I can't go, I can't be on that one. I can't take that one." No, I don't don't believe that one anymore. 
Yeah. And like, or, or maybe when you get to Trinity, he's like, yeah, that works for me, but it might not be true for everybody. You know, like, so that's the, that was the perspective. There's a rejection of what is, is the can. Now we, we think like, I, I, I'm, I'm open to saying that there's a couple of words or a comma or something could be moved in the 11 articles of faith. Like, okay, there, there certainly is, but they represent basic ideas. And that comes within a tradition that is based upon scripture. That's why I'm always thankful that our first article of faith is our doctrine, not just of the Bible, but of revelation. Yeah. This is our doctrine of how God has revealed himself. So how uh, it, really it's an epistemological that. statement. You know, it's not a, it's not just a, a biblicist statement, yeah. but it is an epistemological relevatory statement. So if we, if we have that as a kind of our foundation that God's, you know, created the world out of nothing and he's spoken in time and space. And so we like understand that the scriptures are the primary way that happens. And then we work through a process of how scriptures have been interpreted across the centuries um, that I, I'm, I'm, I'm get all the whole history of doctrine here, but we didn't come to a place where the, our particular tradition, and you could do this with the founders of various other movements in the same tradition, you know, through John Wesley to William and Catherine Booth, that they had a distinct way to think about the salvation of the world and mm -hmm. uh, a military image that helps us think about the, the image that got of, of our work confronting Satan, con confronting sin in the world. Like this, then I would think the, the writings and the work, they're not canonized in the sense that they are in the same value of scripture, but reading what William and Catherine Booth wrote, reading the early leaders of the Salvation Army help us define that, how that has been crystallized through the years. What yeah. do you think, Steve? What else? How, how would we think about the canon of Salvation Army theology? I, I would absolutely agree with that. And, and if I could just give another illustration to your point, um, you and I were actually both at the same conference in 2012 um, in Florida. At a oh, yeah, yeah. national social services conference, right? 2014. And, uh, 2014, sorry. Yeah, yeah. that's right. And, and a very dear friend of mine stood up who had been brought to speak at the conference. And he said, you know, Doctrine 5, yeah, I don't really believe it anymore. You yeah. know? And then he proceeded to go through, I don't believe in the Doctrine 11 in heaven and hell and stuff like this. And, I, and I'm sitting there like going like, what are you drinking here? You know, like this is crazy. And we ended up going into back and forth afterward. And I said, look, at, if you don't believe in those things, you've been given free will. You can choose not to believe those. But at that point, you step outside right. of the boundaries of what define us, the guardrails that define us. In, in, so so in, in organizations, there's something called organization to person fit. You know, mm -hmm. if you're working for Apple, but you're firmly committed to Samsung, you don't have organizational fit. If you're working right. for Coca-Cola, but you're firmly committed that Pepsi is the best way to do things, you're not personal organization fit i think there's per, there's theological fit as well and and, yeah. and there there are guardrails that any denomination has had to say these are the foundations these are the things that define who it is that we are that identity is fixed those values yes. are fixed they're transcendent right if you don't agree with those yeah then you need to step outside the guardrails. That, and, and, and to me, that is not a, an unkind thing. That is just a, I mean, take it on a basic organizational level. So, you know, these guys, Jim Collins and James, yes, James yes, sure. course, yeah. built to last. This is secular training, right? They say this core ideology uh, defines an enduring character of organization, its self-identity that remains consistent through time and transcends product and market cycles, technological breakthroughs, management fads, and individual leaders. Basically, yeah. if you don't believe in that stuff, and he says that's rooted in your history, right? So if that is rooted in your history, 
it means that there's something that is consistent throughout yeah, that, yeah, that yeah. will that is that is aligned. There's a track that that you can either be on or off the track. Right. If you get off the track, that's your decision, but you're no longer on the track which we're in. Now, coming to your question, I'm saying that as pre-prelogue pre, to <laughs> there is a track of writings that are consistent within the Salvation Army and within the broader, you know. Wesleyan holiness and even revivalist and I would say evangelical traditions, right? And, and it would go back as well to the early church fathers. Yes. I believe that we do need to, like Abraham's, create, uh, su suggest, create. And you're you say like Abraham, just to be clear, you're not well, talking well, about Abraham. William, William Abraham. And I would say, again, like Thomas Oden says, like, I, you know, this one, classic, yeah. brilliant stuff, right? To me, the, you know, and William Booth said it like this, by the way, he says this, uh, I'm sorry, if, if I'm taking let me, let me Let me jump in there about Thomas Oden, yeah. just so get, while you get that quote ready or whatever you're going to pull up. The, so we use that here at Western Biblical Seminary. I know Asbury Seminary does as well. Um, his uh, classic uh, systematic theology used to be in three volumes. Look, if you read that and you're in one of these traditions, there's not anything in there that, you know, you, you, that goes against the core beliefs instead like what will happen as a result is like okay as that gets particularized in a di different domination like in in ours steve that then goes towards those who are suffering it, it, it's kind of like applied to people who are homeless and in need and uh and uh exactly. forgotten by their churches so whoop andy you still there yeah can you hear me yeah yeah i'm back yeah <laughs> uh, so, I, we, I never even lost you because I was talking the whole time. So okay, that's good. good shape. So, so, so William Booth said this in 1879. He said that because when this when the Christian mission became the Salvation Army, there were a lot of people that were really deeply concerned because it was an innovation that was radical. It was disruptive innovation, and it led to incredible growth and, and impact. Right, but but people were saying like, have you compromised? Have you changed? Have you drifted from the great tradition of the of the gospel? And he said. We have not developed and improved into universalism, Unitarianism, or nothingarianism, or any other form of infidelity. And then he right, says, right. and we don't expect to. Ours is the same salvation taught in the Bible, proclaimed by the prophets and apostles, preached by Luther and Wesley and Whitfield, sealed by the blood of the martyrs, the very same salvation which was purchased by the sufferings and agony and blood of the Son of God. Well, there that is. Uh, we believe the and that this and this alone will set it right. Hear that? Yes. We are on the track of the old apostles. You don't need to mix up any other ingredients with the heavenly remedy. And so we, we've actually designed a, a model here, which I'll just show for those who can't see it, uh, who are listening. Um, it basically attracts the early church had people that derailed, whether that's Gnosticism or other heresies, right? The Salvation Army, Unitarianism and, and Universalism, and then nothing areas, which was an early form of secularism, were taking people off of tracks. So the question is, for us in the Salvation Army today, what are the things that are seeking to derail us, yeah. right? We need to both know what those are, and we need to know what the right track is, and we need to not just be training people in terms of what the Salvation Army is, but what are people that are on that same track with us from, you know, the Great Commission to today? Yes. Yeah, absolutely. And maybe it's a good time for us to transition. Like, so you and I affirm that there is a basis for saying there is a Salvation Army theology. 
that, oh, that exists. Absolutely. So, so like yeah. we can say, now we're not saying we, that can be refined, that can be thought through, that can be clarified, but there's a foundation from which we move in that direction. And, and I maintain that that comes within the covenant that every member of the Salvation Army Church signs. And that's in our, our soldier's covenant, um, which is still on my, still on my wall uh, at, at this point. So I, I confirm it. Now, one of the things that's come about is that um, there's some, some resources that are being used within the United States, within you know, our particular expression of the Salvation Army in our context, that uh, there's been some troubling trends with it. And, let me just, and, and people know I'm talking about, so I'm just going to say it. And I want to be very cautious in, in, in how I handle this and like to do this in love, but trying to also be that pastor shepherd that God's called me to be and prophet too. Um, yeah. The orange curriculum. Please know that as, as we start to talk about this, there is not a, at the start of it, not a bigger, I don't know, there might be a bigger, but I was one of the biggest fans and I was so thankful. My, my wife and I, we were the kind of one of the test cores. We, you can find by videos on the orange site of me kind of like saying this is this, we need to find a new cup, a new form, new ways to communicate the same truth. And I felt like they had done the research. They had done the work to like understand like how to get the kids. There's a lot of like great resources that are used for parents, great ways to think of things. I went to the conference. I've been a part of various things. So we've been, I've been a fan of the method. Mm -hmm. At the same time, there's been some troubling concerns that come from the organization as a whole with their conference. And some of these things that have been expressed lately, like, um, so Steve, why don't you just highlight, we could, we, it may give me a second to pull up some of the screenshots that unfortunately I yeah. had a lot of people sending to me. Um, and Andy, Andy as well. I mean, like, again, we, we have been, you know, we ran a school for youth worker training. We're very much advocates of, of uh, the best methodology to be able to train an extra. Right. You don't train your kids. You're in serious trouble. You, you have, you know, show me, um, where your 14 year olds are and I'll tell you the future of your organization. Wow. Right. And, you know, and Catherine and William Booth, I mean, William and Catherine Booth believed in this so much that one of the earliest Booth's books that William Booth wrote was the training of children. And then oh the God. subtitle is how our children can be made into saints and soldiers. Right. You know, now the reason why they had this, though, is that in 1875, there was a drift in the Christian mission where people were doing Sunday school, but it was not producing true salvation within individuals. It was not producing the type of evidence of full salvation of, 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 of children being transformed by the gospel. Do you know that William Booth banned it because mm -hmm. he said we were not going to do any more Sunday school, not because we don't want to disciple kids, but because the methodology had be uh, the message wrapped in the methodology had become corrupted. And as a result of that, he said, if we do continue to do this, he says, we inoculate our kids from the possibility right. of truly being transformed if we continue to perpetuate something that is not producing the evident results that we see, the objective of which it's designed to accomplish. And yeah, so yeah. that led to the exploration of a best, better methodology, which led to the founding of Junior Soldiers in 1880, when John Blythe, uh, uh, John Roberts in Blythe, England, you know, started the Little Soldiers Up. That became the methodology because it was producing transformation. This has always been a key point. Now, to today as well, in 2010, I went to national headquarters and proposed that we need to look at digital technology and how we can find a new method by which to disciple as many kids as possible, right? That conversation led to the exploration that led to Orange. So again, I am very much, I mean, I, I have a degree in innovation, 
You know what I mean? I am a fan of finding new and creative and innovative ways to be able to accomplish, you know, our mission, right? Which, which Orange does in a very creative way. I don't have any critique over any of that stuff. However, yeah, well, there is a big however, and I'll give you a, give you a break. What's in the cup? <laughs> yeah, what are we sharing? And I think as even I was a part of administering the curriculum, you know, the curriculum resource, this this like method over the last few years, um, I did see a little bit of a change of emphasis. Um, and this this got to be a bit of a concern. Now, this is at the outset of this conversation, uh, this part of our conversation, we've already been going for a while, Steve. <laughs> but uh, 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 at the outset of it is like, we are like, Orange can be who they want to be. Like they can do, they, they can uh, embrace humanism. They can em- embrace an approach that like is more self-authenticating, um, not emphasize scripture, go ahead. Um, but I think our challenge is to say, well, the, our denomination, which you know, you and I both tie that Salvation Army churches are um, uh, are paying for this, right? Yeah. And we're we're buying a product, and we we think a product should be consistent with who we are as a movement, and it shouldn't be antithetical. So it's just a, a call. Like I hope it still. I don't know about you, Steve. I can't say it's for you. Yeah. I hope it still gets used because oh, I think absolutely. it's a great model. Yeah. I just that the mission has been diluted. Yeah. And, you know, sure, get on to me for saying that uh, I'm just closed-minded, narrow-minded person, but I want my kids to receive the gospel truth. <laughs> yeah. So that's, a, that's uh, where I am. Can I, can I add this as well? Just a bit, of, yeah. a bit of history here. In 2003, I believe it was, Christian Smith published his book, Soul Searching, which came out of the National Study of Youth and Religion. And in that, he coined a phrase where he saw across the board there was a new religion right? Which some people said is actually new worldview, which would be what he calls moralistic therapeutic deism. Right. What that basically is, is, you know, rather than talking about sin and consequence, we talk about morality. Rather than talking about theology, we talk about therapy. God wants you to feel good, you know, and stuff like this. Rather than talking about a transcendent and imminent God, right? We talk about almost a deistic God who is an absent landlord, who really isn't, you know, he's like a genie in the bottle who you call when you need him. Yeah. What's scary is last year, um, the uh, Barna Research Group came out and they, based upon Christian Smith's definition, they predicted that 70% of American evangelicals yes, yes, it's all that. have yeah, fully yeah. embraced moralistic therapeutic deism. Right. That to me is startling, right? Yes. Absolutely startling. That means, and I mean, guys, okay, if we believe to get guardrails of 11 doctrines, that this, if people are embracing this, they're not necessarily embracing justification and sanctification they're not in a state of continued obedient faith which means that we could intentionally be inoculating people convincing them they're saved but actually sending them to hell yes yeah this I mean, that's it's, not it, it's really hard to say that steve but it's just the truth i mean like, if we affirm what we like what we've affirmed from the beginning like you know of course this is william booth said a chief danger for the next generation is uh, a belief of heaven without hell um i'm okay to exist in a society where people don't believe in hell yeah. Right. I'm not okay with that being the Salvation Army. Like, 100%. Yeah. So, like, this is like, it's okay. Like, you're free, Orange, to do what you want to do. Like, that's fine. But, and if the salvationist I, comes to that point, they can believe that, but they need to not, then they need to step out of this. Or absolutely. Just a, they, they should come to our core, you know, and stuff like that. But, 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 but you violate your covenant of soldiership, let alone officership. Right. 
if you do right, and, and you can and this is exactly what's happened in methodism is that there was they tried to come up with ways say oh, okay let's come up with a agree to disagree thing and we'll just all uh, find ways to make this happen there was called the one church plan that existed for a while but no it, 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 people aren't content for you and i to believe in these core doctrines like they want us to change like yeah. i think people generally want us to change because they think they found the truth and we're we're not changing we're not changing here yeah. Yeah. So this is this, I I like for you to highlight some of the things that you've seen particularly that are concerning. Again, like you this what we might be able to do with this is just you know to write leaders and say, look, these particular things are, are problematic, and we we're not saying that it needs to all all go down the tube, but we want things that are consistent with what we've defined Salvation Army what Salvation Army theology has been defined to be. Yeah. Well, the first big thing, I mean, like, again, you know, in terms of the best method to be able to deliver the gospel, I'm all for using fun. I'm using, I'm all for using creativity. I mean, like, I train people on how to use creative strategies, right? But if creativity compromises content, we're in trouble, right? Yes. So the first thing is every single bit of what we are doing needs to have be stylized in the best way, but it needs to be packed with substance, from our youngest kids to our to our to our adults who are using this, and and, and I I find that there isn't the depth. Yeah, uh, if we are not give me some specifics, Steve. Yeah. Like what are what are some of the specifics? Like you were more attuned to what was going on at their conference and some of those things. Like I have one thing yeah. that just came yeah. this morning. Yeah. So 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 the biblical worldview piece, right? Secondly, I, I I would say that if we are introducing things that are not just sort of watered down but are actually contrary to a biblical worldview. It's one thing to sort of be watering down the biblical worldview, but when you shift from a watered down biblical worldview to a, a, to a, a, a worldview that is antithetical to a biblical worldview, that's when my alarms start going off full fledged. Right. Now, my daughter is, is in charge of Christian education for the Salvation Army in the Western Territory. Right. So she went to the Orange Conference. Um, and I mean, we do know as well that, you know, I mean, you can read... Um, you know, there, there was some reaction before when some of their promo material came out, which seemed very humanistic in, in its outcome. Right. But my daughter started sending me pictures of things which were on the screen. She said that while they were at their conference, I mean, you know, they were singing songs, worship songs from the greatest showman, you know, mm -hmm. and, yeah. you know, and stuff like this. Then they started sharing these quotes and it was like a strange, like, she said, she said, like, it was like scripture was sort of almost like the stepchild that sort of got mentioned on the sideline, but they were sharing quotes from that, that were really, I mean, like if you were, if you were on Oprah Winfrey, you know, it would be, it would resonate, you know, I mean, but, yeah. but, but it doesn't really sort of, it's not rooted in any type of scripture or in type, any type of Christian tradition that we're talking about. So that type of thing began to really, really signal red flags for me saying, wait a second, you know, and I think at best, you know, this warrants a conversation of saying, we need to make sure if we are both investing in your, in your company and along with that, utilizing you as a, as a, as a vehicle through which to shape a biblical worldview, you need to, you need to be aligned to what we're doing. Otherwise, yeah, and you know, we might not have time to go into some of the specifics because we are, we are unfortunately running out of time, but some of the things that come with this, like um, it was like a, a, a heavy, heavy emphasis on human humanness like the that's goodness of being human. And I think that's like the challenge that we have is like, like where, where does the doctrine of sin fit in to what we're talking yeah. now? I'm again, 
I, you don't have to use it, the language of doctrine of sin, harmatology. You don't have to say like this, soteriology. Like we're not asking you to be like intellectual in yeah. this, but we're saying like, where does, what, what, what is the goal of what's happening to be more authentically human? Okay, I imagine there's a way you could condition that to make it work within our, the, like we are created to be this way, but because of sin, then Jesus' resurrection presents us with it. I mean, okay, I can maybe couch that, but what ends up being it is it leans back in on, the Christian Smith moral therapeutic deism, which yeah. comes, and I think like we're not, we're you and I aren't prepared to be as specific as as we can, and we don't have the time to go into details. I did get this morning, just as we were walking into this podcast, um, that the uh, and maybe this is wrong, so I'm I'm willing to be corrected, and Steve and I are both willing to be corrected, and we'll come back and say that if we need to, but that the the person who designs the um, the director of the 252 Kids and preteen curriculum um, on his uh, Instagram post identifies himself as he, him, and his. He like has that there. Um, he re his retweeted uh, Richard Rohr quotes um, that, uh, and and also the same thing with uh, John Sel Shelby Spong, uh, Spong uh, a retweet saying um, ultimate truth from the actual person. This is a quote he put out: "Ultimate truth is never well served by little words developed by limited human minds." So we used to be cautious with what we have here. Like, can, is truth discoverable? Yeah. Um, is there objective truth? Yeah. And, and I mean, I, I think what's scary, I mean, he quotes Richard Rohr, Brian McLaren, Rob Bell. For those who might not know who these people are, these are people that have seriously questioned the foundations of evangelical beliefs. In fact, Richard Rohr, who writes this book, The Universal Christ, where he basically sort of challenges our entire soteriology he actually dedicates his book to his dog in whom he, in, in, in who Christ is. He says, I can appropriately say that Venus, his dog was Christ for me. Wow. Wow. You know what I mean? Yeah. So, so like ontological reality, like it's one thing to say, like when you've done it to Lisa, these, you've done it to me, but uh, maybe not your dog. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I'm, I'm kind of like, I, I, you know, this isn't somebody who I necessarily want my kids to be trained, you know, you know, if this Here's is another one real quick, person Steve, like who's in training our kids, I mean, I'm red flags. <laughs> he also from the universal Christ, uh, another orange retreat was a uh, spiritual spirituality is about honoring the human journey, loving it and living in all its wonder and tragedy. Okay. And I could take a second to find a way to condition all of that, but, um, honoring the human journey okay does that what does that include what worldview does that include does it include a doctrine of the, an understanding of the fall redemption yeah. like or, or or however and we we know where richard Rohr falls on this yeah does that mean that we just and this this is why i'm like really cautious with the enneagram like i like because like yeah. often people like go to the enneagram they go to richard Rohr because he's written on this well what does this lead people to to think about themselves like does that mean my instincts and all that i am um are basically okay like I'm honoring the human journey, my own, how I'm feeling about myself. And again, when you read Roar, when you read what Brian McLaren's coming out, when you come up with these guys, okay, so they're not saying this in a vacuum. This isn't some new theology. This is the same, this is, this is Gnosticism. This is Unitarianism. This is Universalism. You know, this is what, what Tom Soden was wrestling with in the 40s and 50s. And it's like the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over again and expecting a different right. result. Yes. Every single time, this has hollowed out denominations and killed them. Yes. Right? 
you know? So here's the thing. If it's a Trojan horse that is parasitical in nature, that is, we know has proven again and again and again to eat something up and destroy it, you know, rather than being a holiness tradition, being a hollowness tradition, you know, because we've been eaten from the inside out, right? At what point do we say, no, I'm sorry, this isn't something new. This isn't some new experiment. This is, as for 2,000 years, that track has led to death. Therefore, if we do this, this is going to kill every person yes. who we are committed to saving. Steve. You're breaching some truth there, my man. Like I, this is this is just very hard for us. Like and, and like I, we come to this. Actually, this, this is not conversation. hard. But can I can I just say, Andy, this yeah. is not hard stuff. Okay, so oh, I, yeah, yeah, I gotcha. This is so I'm radical. Saying it's it's it, it's 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 difficult. You know what I mean when I say it's hard. Maybe. Yeah, there is. So here's here's the tough thing, friends. Whether we're on the extreme right or the extreme left, there are syncretisms which we fall in. When you stand true to what, you know, your denomination's historic doctrines have been, you're not being a radical. If you are being a radical, if you feel like you need to whisper, by the yeah. way, I believe in the 11 doctrines of the subject. Don't tell anyone because they're yeah. going to think I'm too radical. We got something wrong, right? Yeah. It'd be like working for McDonald's and saying, I, don't tell anyone that I like Big Macs, you know? Yeah. Oh, because I could be fired from McDonald's? What? <laughs> Let me tell you, Steve. One that makes no sense. I, I hear from a lot of those people who are whispering that right now. Yeah. And, and I'm, I don't criticize them because some of them are in positions where it's really hard for them to figure out, like, they're honestly trying to balance out how do I na navigate and leverage the opportunities that I have to influence change. And, you know, for what it's worth, like, I'm not in a position to do that sort of change like I was a year ago when I was serving as a cyber term officer. But I can do this now. Like, I have a little bit more freedom to do this type. But what's happened is because of me being in this seat right now it's led to other people communicating to me. And like, I just want you to know there's other people out there and I encourage you like not, I don't like my show isn't going to be like Joe Rogan number. Like I don't like, I'm not trying to make a plan. I'm just trying to connect people of similar beliefs. Like yeah. if you, if you hear what Steve and I are saying and you resonate with it, share this with other people. Like let's just find avenues for encouraging people. And there are groups, like I saw an interesting one pop up today um, by uh, I think major Richard Pease. Yeah, um, from the Intermountain Division of the Salvation Army. And he said, um, and he, he had a group, a Facebook group for a while. It was kind of like committed to talking about holiness, but now he's like felt led. Okay, holiness is a part of it, but it's going to be orthodoxy, Salvation Army orthodox, like people in the consent, everything that we've been saying. So there are, are other people out there, but it is time. It is time Speak to up. say your voice, use your voice. Yeah. And like, we encourage you to do that. And, and it might just be uh, simple because I'll tell you what, the 3% on the other side, whatever it might be, are are definitely making their voices heard so we want to like encourage you to do that there's another thing steve to uh, let me let you comment on that and then I i'm hoping we get to the polity question yeah yeah, yeah can, can i just say this in a post-mortem of, of next methodism what i would say is those fifty-eight thousand people should have spoken up i studied at nyu in, yeah. in culture right in media I studied with the people who are the architects of a lot of the stuff, right? And there's it, 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 the 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 um, the the critical theorist um, uh, Antonio Gramsci, who introduced right, the right, idea sure. of hegemonic thinking, the idea yeah, yeah. of a person who has power who creates a silent co-optation of their beliefs. That that the the, the strategy which Saul Alinsky, you know, who Thomas Owen was talking about, he he what he says is he creates a counter hegemonic force that challenges the hegemonic dominant 
for what what this person does is takes everybody in between that and stereotypes them that are saying and it's it's called a kafka trap right where it says if you speak up you will be labeled as the extreme stereotype that we've created so everyone goes oh i'm just not going to say anything then because if I say something, I will be associated with that. That's called a Kafka, Kafka, Kafka trap. It's a, it's a counter hegemonic strategy. The most powerful thing, which every salvationist, every Methodist, every church of the Nazarene, by the way, church of the Nazarene guys, you guys have got some attacks going on there as well. You know, we need to begin to leverage the testimony of faithful believers. And it's not wrong. It's not radical to say this is not aligned. This leader is not aligned. This communication method is not aligned. This teaching is not aligned. If that is wrong, then fire me. Yeah. And this is the case too. I'm going to just refer people back to, uh, because of something else that's come up uh, to my uh, podcast I did with Matt Ayers, Dr. Matt Ayers, president of Wesley Biblical Seminary on um, mixed messages on human sexuality uh, that, that I put out because I saw there was enough coming out that was questioning like uh, from official Salvation Army sources, and I know this has happened in other traditions too, that is inconsistent with our articles of faith, was inconsistent with the stands we've taken. And so some more of that has happened, and maybe we'll provide links to this, uh, from the Australian territory. Like there's been things like a clear move away uh, from scripture's teaching. And so like these things are in place, and the, the challenge is like these other voices come in, and it might feel somewhat powerless in the midst of this. Yeah, but we do have a system, and I, I'm not going to yes. give this justice. I'm just going to have to like we have about five things we need to cover on our next podcast sometimes. Exactly, Steve. for but sure. I'm I'm eating into my lunch time, which is fine, but I'll slowly get back. So here's here's what I say: is like our system is such that we have a hierarchical system. Now, there's yes. uh, that's that's already putting off buzzwords of people that okay, it's really problematic. Um, at the same time, we have a polity. Like the structure of our denomination is such that there is one executing officer. And I right. use that word like they're they're tasked CEO. Yeah. Um, there's it's time for accountability. And what the great the, the benefit that the Salvation Army has over the Methodist Church, the United Methodist Church, is that the leaders who promote the certain things, if they actually hold people accountable to it, it can happen. Mm-hmm. Like the that truth of the, the authority of scripture, they just needs accountability. So I've often said over the last year, where many denominations are right now is a place for accountability or division. So if you say you believe these things, we need to hold people accountable to it. Otherwise, what you're actually leading and guiding is inconsistent with who you are. Yeah. So that's, that, that's the point that I think we're at. And I would say this, governance is not a new idea. You know, governance has been with us since the beginning, right? And the question is, are we leveraging our autocracy, right? right. What was it created for? So so yeah, we, we were talking about this yesterday as well. Yeah. That Frederick Booth Tucker wrote a biography of Catherine Booth. And in that, um, he was talking about actually the Methodist Church and some of the conferences, co- conflicts which they're having um, after Wesley had died. And, you know, he had appointed the 100 who were going to succeed to him. Jabez Bunting at that point was in charge. He was very much a, a, a despotic autocrat, I think you could say. And, and it created a lot of conflict. At the same time, you had transatlantic revivalists coming over from America, James Coggy, Phoebe and Walter Palmer and others who were there. And, and, and it created a conflict, you know, with the, um, the movement of the Wesleyan reformists sort of came out of that, which was very sort of democratic in nature and things like that. Catherine and William Booth were looking for something. 
that would hold out, they could see benefits in the Wesleyan Methodists and benefits in the Wesleyan Reformers, particularly when the fly sheets were going on the 18, was it 49? 49, yeah, 49, yeah. Yeah, yeah, it went over several years, I think, I believe. But 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 what they want is, is they use these terms, Frederick Buck Tucker, he said they, that were able to combine the stability and elasticity of, of those two movements. Stability, you know, of autocracy in terms of our identity and our purpose, our doctrines and our disciplines, and then elasticity in terms of our strategy and structure. They, we, the Times, again, the cup has got to always innovate. But you need your autocracy to make sure that the gospel is instilled in every program, every curriculum, every person, you know. And if it isn't, that misalignment, that's where we need to step in. And, our and, and what, what, what's worth autocracy isn't necessarily we're talking like in the pure political sense of that word. No. Instead, autocracy almost is in our time, it would be even the role of a CEO in a corporation. Like yeah. their, their job is like to maintain the mission. There's people in charge of operations. There's people to in protect charge of- yeah, That's right. So and when I say 1849, for what it's worth, there was uh, the expulsion from the Wesleyan Methodist Conference. This was like a, a the denomination of sorts. It, what, they wouldn't have used that term at that time. Kicked out three people, including William Booth's first pastor from yeah. Nottingham, Samuel Dunn. And so, like, this is all, and this is why I'm working on my dissertation. Interesting enough, like, there's enough movement ecclesiologically in these first, you know, 55 years, 60 years of Methodism after John Wesley, where there was like trying to figure out what it meant to embrace his legacy, which had a very similar autocratic focus, right? Like, um, like he was the primary leader, but yet it was a reform movement. So they're trying to fit to the church of England. So they're trying to figure that out. And then by the time we get to the point when William Booth leaves the Methodist New Connection, which is one of these splinter groups that came off of uh, Methodism, he did so because of polity. Now, now this is the, 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 keep this in mind. Like this is why the Salvation Army eventually comes into existence is because there's an ecclesiological matter. There wasn't somebody putting in the, the conference was making a decision, a political decision. Mm-hmm. And what that was was basically, no, William Booth, you're gonna have to move up the chairs, but also um, they didn't affirm the role of the evangelist from Ephesians four. Yeah. Like, so I think I think it's an yeah. ecclesiological matter. They didn't like he wanted to be an itinerant evangelist, and they wouldn't affirm that. So that's part of why he left. And what did he start? Now I don't like the word hierarchy. I think of more um, because there's problems in handing that down to future generations. Yeah. Because it, it has become unconnected to the reality of the of the real world in the field. But what ends up happening um, is that that William Booth starts this group, and it's I think of it more as apostolic. It's ascending. It's a coordinating of mission. It's accountability. So that's yeah. that's part of what I would. Can I can I just add to that? Yeah. Talk about a talk uh, hierarchy as well. I can actually show you from 1924. There was an organizational study of the Salvation Army done that showed the flowchart of of uh, when Evangeline Booth was commander of the army in America. And basically, the flowchart was about 30 different people, all of which answered to Evangeline Booth. Yeah. Now, interestingly enough, that was a flat organizational structure, but it was still autocratic. In 1969, when Booz Allen Hamilton did a study, they actually took the GM model and built that into the Salvation Army's autocratic structure, which built multiple layers of autocracy, which then almost became more bureaucratic rather than autocratic. I actually think we need to understand what is a proper theology of autocracy. Now, going back to the Salvation Army, in 1875, 
William Booth adopted the polity of the Methodist New Connection and immediately had political issues within the Christian right. mission. And that's where, the, you know, Bramwell Booth, George Scott Railton, and others said, we don't need a general superintendent, we need a general, right? right. That is going to say, let's stop debating these things. Let we, we know what is true. Let's stand by what is true. And today we have a general still, right? Yes. That is able to say, this is our doctrine. That, you know, and I'm glad that our general has said this is where we stand on these issues, right? And and, and I think that's not that 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 actually can be a strength. That can actually. Yes, yeah, I'm life. thankful for those statements that he's that the generals had through the years. You know, like yeah. general after general has been consistent. General, after general has done which, that, which per, which demonstrates that there is such a thing as a Salvation Army theology. Yeah, it, absolutely, absolutely. The piece now, is now, accountability. Now we don't know what's happening behind the scenes, so we get we leave room for that that we might not understand the full picture. We do we do think like, but when people are breaking off from scripture, yeah. um, when they're breaking off from the consensual tradition of the church, yeah. um, this is where we get into trouble. Now I do think that does also speak to discipline, where if you have somebody that is not aligned, that leader has the right to remove that person. You know, William right. Booth removed some of his own children, right? Yeah. Yeah. You know? And again, and, I, I'm making the argument. Interesting, Steve. Uh, yeah. we, we just need to come back on together that what, yeah. what happens with the, the three children that left is um, an ecclesiological crisis. Yeah. I mean, this is like the nature yeah, of the and how the sure. church works. Um, but that's for my dissertation, which I probably need to be writing right now. Exactly. Okay. Can I finish with this last thing? One more thing. Yeah. Okay. Well, just last thing. It's very, very quick because I think it summarizes up everything that we've talked about from the beginning to the end. Peter Greer and Chris Horst have written a brilliant book called Mission Drift. Actually, yes. the subtitle of it, let me just see, uh, where did I put the subtitle of it? Uh, anyways, it's basically how our leaders, churches, and, and charities uh, can basically stay true. You know, the, oh no, the crisis that's facing our leaders, churches, and, and charities. But they introduced three different definitions, mission true, mission drift, and mission untrue. And I think every single one of us need to be thinking about this. They define a mission true organization as an organization that knows the DNA of their founders and replicate and reinforce that DNA in their organizations. Right. They change and adapt, hear that? Certainly, but they don't budge on mission. Their yeah. leaders are uniform on immutables. They wake up thinking about their core identity and guard it with a tenacious and contagious fervor. Mission drift, though, unfolds slowly. Like a current, it carries organizations away from their core purpose and identity. And then a mission untrue organization is a point when the flames of Christian distinctiveness lose all visibility. Despite their founding identity, they no longer have any concern about their Christian mission or any desire to create safeguards to protect it. Hmm. Yeah, I yeah. think the hard question for all of us, both as individuals and as denominations, is to ask ourselves, are we being mission true? Are we in a state of drift? Or are we in a state where we are fully untrue? If yeah, we are untrue, friends, I mean, we believe that, you know, you know, repenting, you know, confessing, you know, <laughs> restoring is yeah. possible. And it, it, it might maybe a litmus test for uh, that is like, how often in have you called for repentance? Yeah. Uh, how often? How often have you called um, for? I mean, I'm not saying just like on these matters. Like, yeah. how often does that happen in your congregation? And, um, and, and I think, I think, I think the challenge is that so often we can see that so clearly in other people, right? But no, our right. hubris causes us to realize, well, I am completely aligned. It's everyone else who's not aligned. Right. I have to ask myself, Steve, 
am I in a state of drift? Steve, am I being untrue? Right. And that's the thing is that if every one of us could have the humility to ask ourselves those questions, I think a lot of these things would begin to correct themselves. You're right. Yep. And, and it's, uh, somebody, I think I originally heard this from Isaiah Allen, who used to be serving with you. Right. He, said, I, he quoted somebody else. So I can't remember who it was. He's like, he says, no problem in our tradition couldn't be solved with better discipleship. And, Absolutely. Uh, so Absolutely. like I, it's the next growing saints. Yeah. yeah. I believe so. This is a part of where we are. So thanks so much for your time. See, we definitely are going to be doing this again. Uh, and we have other subjects that we didn't get to, but I'm <laughs> thankful, thankful for you and the influence that you and Sharon have and uh, looking forward to seeing where this goes. If, if you all wouldn't mind, so, uh, again, uh, subscribing, liking, um, sharing this with other people. Even if you don't feel like you're in a position to share public on Facebook, though, of course, that, or, or in social media, that's a great way. Sharing it via email, like say, hey, some of these things that Andy and Steve are talking about, I think really are connected to some of the problems that we're experiencing. And, and, and note too, like if you try to characterize what we're doing as like this uh, hateful sort of thing or whatever, just remember like we, we, we started it off by talking about the beauty of the gospel that we're for. And we want that, we want to express that. So thanks so much, Steve, and we'll be in touch. And Andy, thanks so much for all that you're doing. Love the podcast. You got to keep keep doing this, man. Keep speaking prophetically uh, into, into the broader church and into the Salvation Army.